you're listening to the Buddhist Philosophy Podcast. On this episode, I had a great discussion with a really exciting philosopher named Justin Holder. Justin is a DPhil candidate in philosophy at the University of Oxford. He first encountered Madhyamaka Buddhist philosophy while reading for his bachelor's degree in philosophy at the University of the West Indies in his home country of Barbados. He decided then that he wanted to commit to studying it seriously. That eventually led him to Oxford, where he is working on a dissertation which combines Madhyamaka with the philosophy of science. Today, we are talking about his paper, A Kantian Reading of the Muladhyamaka Karaka. It considers how Immanuel Kant's methodology can strengthen our reading of the roughly 2nd century Indian Buddhist philosopher Nagarjuna, who founded the Madhyamaka school. There's a stereotype about philosophy that it consists of thinking about only the most basic or deep components of reality. In my experience, most philosophy doesn't do this, but the philosophy we speak about today does do a lot of it. Justin interprets Nagarjuna as claiming that we can never make existential judgments, which are judgments about what really is the case. I'm grateful to Justin for coming on, and I hope you enjoy listening to the podcast as much as I did making it. So in the paper, you talk about two senses of ultimate truth, and these are like normative and technical ultimate truth. So what's going on there? What are those? What is that distinction? Right. So the first sense of ultimate truth is the one that any regular speaker of English would understand from those words is what really is true without any qualification. I, I call it the normative sense of ultimate truth because the point of it is to indicate some evaluative standard for truth. It's supposed to tell us that this is the real deal truth, what we ought to believe. Um, so that's pretty straightforward. The second sense of ultimate truth is the kind of philosophically technical one that's especially relevant for Majamata. Um, what's ultimately true in that sense is what's true in accordance with the intrinsic natures of things involved in the truth claim. So that technical sense is the result of some, some reasoning. Um, the idea is that the ultimate truth is supposed to be a correct description of the nature of the world. And to describe the true nature of the world, you need to understand the true natures of the things in it. So basically, you need to make sure that you're not just projecting your own conceptual constructions out on the world. And to do that, you need to be confident about what the independent natures of the things you're talking about are. And only by speaking about the real things as they are intrinsically, can you be sure that you're doing that. So the technical sense of ultimate truth just kind of skips to this point, And it says that the ultimate truth is that which corresponds with things as they are in themselves. So of course, you'll realize that they're not completely separate, the two senses of ultimate truth. And the technical sense is just a kind of philosophical philosophically contrived effort to put some specific criteria on what the normative sense should be. So someone using the technical sense of ultimate truth is implying that the only claims that are really true are the claims which correspond to how things are in themselves in this specific metaphysical sense. I think it's important to separate the two sentences to begin with so that there's room to ask questions like, ought we to believe that in order for something to be really true, it must correspond to the intrinsic nature of things. Um, so there's not confusion about what we mean when we, when we say ultimate truth. And as we'll probably discuss in a little while, I think that drawing the distinction helps us make a lot more sense of what Nagarjuna was up to. And then we have these existential judgments, and Nagarjuna is saying something about kind of what existential judgments can do and whether they work or not. So what, what is an existential judgment? Yeah, well, nothing too spectacular. I mean, existential in this context means just having to do with existence. 
and a judgment just means a claim as to what is or is not. So I came up with the phrase existential judgment. I don't know how many people use it, but I just came up with it to mean um, a claim as to what does or does not exist. That's all that means. Right, right. So I guess we can go to that then. So, mm-hmm. so, so what is the structure of this argument then that Gajan is presenting about existential judgments in particular? Sure. Well, first I'll just um, outline what I presented in the paper and then we'll look at the premises one by one. Mm-hmm. So the first premise, this is, by the way, a reconstruction of how I see what Nagarjuna argues. And the first premise I see it is um, any judgment analyzed in terms of intrinsic nature yields absurdities and or contradictions. The second premise is any existential judgment can only be metaphysically determinate if it's analyzed in terms of intrinsic nature. And this includes extrinsic nature um, by extension. We'll talk about that. <laughs> The third premise is to be sung, any normative ultimate existential judgment must be metaphysically determinate and yield neither absurdities nor contradictions. And the conclusion is there are no sung normative ultimate existential judgment. So we can go back to the first premise now. Let's look at them one by one. So the first premise is any judgment analyzed in terms of intrinsic nature yields absurdities and or contradictions. So the claim here is that if you look at any claim about the world and understand the various elements, objects, terms in that claim to be things with their own intrinsic nature, you will discover absurdities or contradictions if you think about it too much. So, for example, if you say leaves are green, and you understand that to mean there's a thing called a leaf that has the intrinsic nature of leafness, and green that has the intrinsic nature of greenness, when you think about how those things relate to each other in that statement, you're going to come up with problems. And this is a tough premise. This is the kind of core that, of what Nagarjuna is arguing for. So most of his argumentation is trying to put into getting him to believe this. So we'll leave it there for now. That's the general idea of, of what we're trying to get to here. The second premise that any existential judgment can only be metaphysically determined if it's analyzed in terms of intrinsic nature, including extrinsic nature. So, first of all, metaphysical determinacy, that just means that you have to be precise. It's just metaphysical precision. You're sure that you're talking about this instead of that. That's what I mean by determinate here. That you know that you're you're speaking about this specific thing and not that specific thing. And the claim here is that to be properly precise about what you mean in this way, when you claim that something exists or doesn't exist, you need to appeal to intrinsic nature. That's, that's the core of the claim. And the premise is more complex than it might seem at first. So you'll see that I tapped onto it, that this holds even when you're appealing to extrinsic nature, which just means um, the nature of that something has through dependence on other things instead of the nature that it has all on its own. So for example, if you say Omar is taller than Rashid, then the property of being taller than Rashid is a property that contributes to Omar's nature. But it's not intrinsic to him because it depends on the relative height of Rashid. And that makes it part of Omar's extrinsic nature because it depends on what's outside of him. Now, what Nagarjuna claims is that talk about extrinsic nature can't get off the ground unless we can establish that there is intrinsic nature somewhere involved. So we can't establish that Omar is taller than Rashid unless we know how tall Rashid is himself and how tall Omar is himself. So we need to 
we need intrinsic nature to account for extrinsic nature. We need to appeal to the intrinsic nature of something to explain the extrinsic nature of something else. And therefore, you can't metaphysically define an object extrinsically without relying on defining at least some object intrinsically. Um, so you have this reduction of any kind of dependent nature to an intrinsic nature. So coming back to the premise, the idea is that it might be in principle possible to make a metaphysically determinate existential judgment appealing only to extrinsic nature. But Nagarjan is insisting that this will always ultimately rely on an appeal to intrinsic nature. So that's a, that's a totally key um, aspect of this premise that's insisting that we need intrinsic nature to make um, precise claims about reality. Now, if I were Nagarjuna's opponent, it would be here that I attack him, because he doesn't expend much effort actually defending his point, despite its importance. He only argues for it in one half of a verse, chapter 15, verse 3 of the Karakas. Uh, and that's probably because he... He's just saying there that this is what other people already accept. He doesn't feel the need to defend it because I think as far as he's concerned, the opponents already believe this. But nowadays people are quite ready to entertain the idea that there can be extrinsic nature without intrinsic nature. So this is the idea that everything can be defined through relational properties without any need for an inner core identity. So if you can imagine a kind of um, network of interdependence where every kind of node in the network is defined by its relation to everything else. And it's an idea that's taken quite seriously now, and at least will take some argument to, to dispel. And I, ironically, I think that, that some people think that this is what Nagarjuna is arguing for, that he, he would agree with such a view. But that's, that's not right. In fact, if you accept that this kind of mutual interdependence thing is even a coherent view of the world, Nagarjuna's argument loses its validity. So he, he was trying to dismiss it because he needs you to believe that intrinsic nature is what we need to define things. So even though I think, I, th I agree with Nagarjuna about this, I think um, it's the weakest element of his argument. And I'll probably, probably write about it defending him at some point, though I don't know why. So yeah, that's, that's premise two. We need intrinsic nature. You with me so far? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just <laughs> the only question I had for that is if, if something was made determinate in terms of extrinsic properties there through this relational approach, does that then mean that it isn't an existential judgment according to Nagarjuna? No, it, it would be. It would be. Right. Um, so it, I'm specifically thinking, I think it's, it's chapter 15, verse 4. So just right after his talk about that, he, he says that you need intrinsic or extrinsic nature to establish an existence. That's what he says. But he says you don't have either because we don't have intrinsic nature. Yeah, so, so the idea is that you could use either of those to establish that what you're talking about. But ultimately, without intrinsic nature, you don't get access to either. Got it. All right, so let's go to premise three then. To be sound, any normative ultimate existential judgment must be metaphysically determinate and yield neither absurdities nor contradictions. So this premise is just saying that you can't expect to take someone's claim about what is real or what exists as a genuine description of the true nature of reality seriously if it can't be made precise or if it's contradictory or absurd. Um, I think it's a pretty strong premise. 
Of course, you can argue that you don't need to be super precise usually when making claims about what exists for the most part, which is true. But it's just admitting that we almost always rely on convention to carry productive discourse about what exists. As for contradictions and absurdities, you could argue that the nature of the world doesn't have to fit comfortably within our conceptual framework. So maybe contradictions and absurdities aren't, aren't deadly for claims like that. Uh, and that, that's plausible. But the absurdities Nagarjuna draws attention to kind of aren't those like you would find in say quantum mechanics where there's some well-confirmed natural phenomenon that we can't get our heads around. Rather, he, he tries to show that when an opponent is kind of defending their metaphysical intuitions, that they would have to themselves posit conceptually nonsensical things to maintain their position. For example, they would have to claim that non-existent things have to cause existent things, or that something is seen without anything being seen, or stuff like that. So the idea is that in order for them to prop up their own intuitions, they would have to make appeal to these absurdities. And so I doubt many people want to defend that kind of move. Yeah, so that's that, that's that premise that for to be taken seriously with your claims about what exists, you need to be precise and you can't invite contradictions or absurdities. And then you have the conclusion that there are no sound normative ultimate existential judgments. So I went through the effort of distinguishing between the normative and technical sense, specifically so that I can say that this is a normative use of ultimate. If I just said that Nagarjuna wants us to believe that there's no some ultimate existential judgment, then like that, that, some people might read it and say, well, yeah, of course he's saying that there are no some judgments when understood according to intrinsic nature. But that's not Nagarjuna's final point. His point is that existential judgments can't really be true. Not that they just can't be true in some technical philosophical sense. He's making a normative case against the very effort to take positive ontology seriously. So yeah, that's that's the structure of the argument as I reconstructed it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Svavava is, is, of course, the Sanskrit word for intrinsic nature. Right. Um, and yeah, the idea is basically that just that, that in order for you to, to make the, a claim that's really true, you need to appeal to it. Hmm. Um, but if you appeal to it, you end up with things that you can't accept in your in your claims. So you're, you're in a catch-22, basically. You have to use this thing, this intrinsic nature idea, Svabhava, as the, the marker of a, of a claim about the world. But you also can't, because you'll just end up um, speaking things that you wouldn't accept. So you, you just can't have a, a, a claim about the world in that sort of thing. And um, so the, the need for metaphysical determinacy well, I think the idea is just a simple intuition that um, you, you can't, I can't take you seriously if you say that something exists if, if you don't know what you mean. Right. You know, if you say, tell, want to convince me that atoms are real, they're really out there, it's a real structure of the world, you need to tell me exactly what you're talking about. You need to define it specifically. Because if you, if you really know what you're talking about, you should know exactly what that thing is that you're claiming is out there. But if it's the case that we, we can't even, in principle, identify what exactly it is, how can you take seriously the claim that it exists? Hmm. That's the idea. So if, if you if you can't identify what you're talking about and say, that, oh, well, it exists, I don't know what it is, but it exists, 
then well, what do you do with that? You know, the idea is that that's that's empty. That's not going to give you any true insight into what reality is like. Right. And this is we're looking at concepts here. We're not really looking at things in themselves. It's more kind of how we can understand the world, right? Yeah, it's about our capacity to make these kinds of judgments. Because, hmm. as you know, it, it's um, it'll be really difficult to try to make a claim about everything in the world, and I think probably impossible for a philosopher just sitting down thinking about it. So, in order to get to this idea that, well, I'm making an argument that affects how we speak about absolutely anything or, or any possible object, it, it almost has to be working on a conceptual level. It has to be about our capacity to justify the things that we say. So that's that's what it's about. It's about our capacity to justify claims as to what exists or doesn't exist at a conceptual level. Maybe to bring it back to a level of broad understanding of the the claim here, we could talk about this case of a Theseus's ship. Yeah, so the idea is, you know, you have this ship and it gradually exchanges its parts over time. And so maybe a year from from now, it looks exactly the same, but it's actually exchanged every single part of it. So it's made of completely different stuff. And the question is, well, is it the same ship or not? And that's exactly the kind of thing the Guardian knows. Well, don't, that's the kind of silly question you don't ask <laughs> because you can't answer it. To tell whether something is the same or different, you need to identify its metaphysical identity. You know, you have to say, well, this is what makes something what it is so that you can check if it's still that thing or something else. That's the starting point of that kind of discussion. And the Guardian is saying that's not anything if that's not something that you're ever going to find. So these kinds of thought exercises just can't get off the ground. You, you, you can't discover when some one ship stops existing and another one starts existing. No matter what, it just that's just not something that you find in reality, that sort of way. You can't identify it. And that's what's, I think, satisfying about this style of philosophy, because it's trying to show us that some of the tough problems that we have are really just misadventures in thought. And, and when you realize that, it, you know, it, it's a real blessing because you don't, just don't have to think about this kind of stuff anymore. If you realize, oh, I don't actually have ultimate criteria to tell whether something is, is the same or different as it was before. I just have to kind of deal with it as it comes. What you can do is, is stipulate what it means to be the same ship or not. So that is create a convention. So I could decide with you, all right, let's just call it the same ship when it looks the same. Or I could decide with you, let's call it the same ship when it's made up of the same stuff. And then if we agree on that, there'll be a definite answer to our question of whether it's the same ship or not. But the answer to that question isn't given to us by the world or given to us by perfect rational thought. It's given to us relative to a convention. And, and we can think about it and we can analyze it. We can look at the world to decide whether it's the same ship or not, after we've decided what it means to be the same ship or not. But still, the truth is always going to be relative to that convention that we just decided. And that's that's what it means to be a, a convention. It's something that's freely created by your mind. It's not something that is given to you by the world or, or created rationally. And that's why we say that for Nagarjuna, truths can only be true conventionally. Truths, at least truths that are existential. So truths about what exists or don't exist, at least can only be true via convention. Hmm. The, the point is that we have this kind of conventional thing that's fine and serves us well, but 
if we're going to go, is it really that, then that's about ultimates and correspondence and intrinsic nature, which we don't have. Yeah, precisely. Right. So, so the idea is that Nagarjuna is just saying, don't go there, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, so the importance also for his religious thought is, so he, he thinks obviously that's person, perfectly fine to talk about the Buddha and the Dharma and all the elements of Buddhism that you need to do proper practice and so on. And he thinks that people should talk about these things and work out the right way to practice and so on and so forth. But he saw like his, his co-religionists arguing so much about what the ultimate nature of reality is. And he was like, you know, this doesn't help. <laughs> you, you can't actually answer these questions that you're getting into such a, playing yourselves in knots about. Just, just treat what we say is in the world as, you know, a, a conventional truth. And so we, we can work with that. We can, like, we can work thoroughly with the idea that the Buddha was real and what he taught and so on and so forth without getting into these specific metaphysical debates about what's really there and what's not really there because you can't actually answer those questions. It's impossible. And so he's, he's basically just saying, as soon as you go there into the question of ultimate ontology, that you've just lost the track and you, you're just gonna, gonna be lost. But if, if we just understand that we're using conventions and we, we understand and we agree on our conventions and our set and can know what we're talking about in that sort of way, then there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And this isn't the view that there's kind of, there is a, some kind of ultimate truth that's inaccessible or ineffable like but how how is it distinguished from from those views well i'm not i'm not sure that's the case i think right there i think that so like in Madhyamaka, you see them quite speak quite freely about this tattva which means like thatness and th there is this recognition that reality reality is some way you know and then you, you see claims like Nagarjuna says, you know, don't, don't project concepts onto it and so on and so forth. So there is this sense of ineffability that comes in somewhere. But I think the important point to make is that when, when he says that things are empty and so forth, that's, that's not what he's talking about. He, he's talking about the stuff that's right in front of us. So he's saying that and, and that's kind of a philosophical innovation where he, he says, okay, so if you look at any ordinary thing, a book in front of you or, or a tree or something like that, and you try to penetrate the nature of that thing, you're going to come up with the same kind of nothing <laughs> that you would come up trying to penetrate the ultimate nature of reality anyway. Mm. And he, he famously said that um, nirvana is the same as samsara. So nirvana, the kind of ultimate transcendent, um, state or the ultimate release from this world is actually exactly the same as this world itself. And I mean, just, just a lot of talk about what that means, but when you take it to his metaphysics, I think part of what he means is that you, you, people already agree that we can't express nirvana in concepts. And he's saying also, well, you also can't express an, an everyday object in concepts either. It's just as uncreated, just as ungraspable, just as out there. So he's kind of just saying that the world as it is, you know, you can't, we can't grasp its nature. Um, he's not saying that there's something, some object or idea or world out there that we can't grasp. 
he's saying that the world itself, what we're experiencing, what we're in, what, what we're doing, that our concepts don't encapsulate what it actually is. Um, so, so there's some degree of ineffability, I think, that you could argue for, but it's, it's not the typical, oh, there's, there's a noumenon out there that we don't know, as opposed to these phenomena that we're experiencing, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I guess this brings us quite nicely then to one of the big steps of the paper is to connect this, not in a comparative sense, but in a sense that Kant's use might actually strengthen Nagarjuna's claims. Immanuel Kant, Enlightenment philosopher, why, why would he be useful for Nagarjuna's claims? Right. So... A reasonable person, I think, to look at what Nagarjun is doing and claim that it's just methodologically unsound. Most of, most of Nagarjuna's argumentation focuses around causation. A significant amount also looks at how properties inhere in substances, but causation is the main star. So I'll just focus on that, but what I'm going to say applies to both. And from all of these arguments about causation, about how causation doesn't make sense in this or that context when you assume that things have intrinsic nature, he gets to the conclusion that we can't make any claims about existence itself. And a reasonable person could say, you know, okay, Nagarjuna, you found some interesting problems with causation, but relax. No matter what you do, you can't get from there are these problems with causation to undermining all of existence. And you could say, well, maybe causation just doesn't make sense to humans. The world obviously functions in a certain ordered way. And maybe it's impossible for us to grasp it properly or even to justify causal relations as we think we understand them, as Hume argued. But we can't then reason backwards from that to make sweeping claims about the ontological status of all possible objects. It just doesn't fit. And I think that that objection would be effective if we think of causation as a, a fact about the natural world, which we discover empirically. Because in that case, I would argue it doesn't, have to make any sense to us at a conceptual level. It is what it is, and we just have to do our best to map out how it works, even if it can't fit within our metaphysical intuition. And it wouldn't make sense to try and use the conceptual infelicity, you could say, of causation to draw conclusions about the ontological status of things. Just because we imagine that things with intrinsic nature can't exist in causal relations with each other doesn't mean that there are no things with intrinsic nature, it just means that we don't understand it. So if we accept that, that would be kind of deadly for Nagarjuna's project. But what would make Nagarjuna's methodology sensible is treating causation not as a natural phenomenon that we have to discuss, phenomenon that we have to discover, but as a concept that comes prepackaged with our conceptual endowment and is partially constitutive of our ability to think about the world in the first place. So if we think of our minds as things we have, basic predetermined frameworks for thought about reality, including these basic concepts which we must use to make sense about the world, which are constitutive of our ability to make sense of the world, then you could make the case that problems involving one or more of these basic concepts have implications for our capacity to make judgments about anything, right? because we need to use them to make judgments about anything. So. When I set out writing this paper, um, I wasn't thinking, let's see how we can compare Kant and Nagarjuna. Rather, I was thinking, man, Nagarjuna needs some commitment to basic concepts for his methodology to work. And then I said, you know, oh, wait, that's Kant's 
So I need to write about Kant. And that's how this paper came to be what it is, because Kant is a figure in European philosophy who wrote at length, and some might say ad nauseum, about exactly this idea of basic concepts underlying our capacity to make judgments. So he's got to be a thinker to look at when trying to figure out um, how we could support Nagarjuna's argument, assuming that I'm right and he needs to, to think of causation and other things as these basic concepts that come prior to any investigation of the world. So yeah, to the question, to answer your question, I mean, I think Nagarjuna needs to lean on some of the, this idea and Kant can help because, you know, defending this idea was his big contribution to European philosophy. Does that mean that Nagarjuna and Kant were like basically arguing for the same position? Then? No, but I think the line between them is much thinner than one might think. I mean, I'm not going to explain Kant in detail because we'll be here all day, but at least I should say for Kant, so phenomena are the objects of experience, the things that we can experience. And noumena are supposed to be things as they are in themselves, which we can't experience because they're independent from all of our conceptual abilities and, and sense, sensible abilities. So a thing with intrinsic nature with Skababa could only be noumenal in Kant's system. And Kant argued that the only things that we could properly do metaphysics about were phenomena, objects of experience. So when it comes to the claim that things lack intrinsic nature, it's just simply a consequence of Kant's system that everything we experience or can experience lacks intrinsic nature. So if you're someone who thinks that um, Nagarjuna is only using the technical sense of ultimate truth, only saying that things lack intrinsic nature, and that's his final point, Kantians will at least already agree with him when it comes to anything that we can experience. And when it comes to noumena, things in themselves, a Kantian would say that Nagarjuna's methodology, it can't possibly tell us about them and their nature, because noumena completely transcend the basic concepts we used to think about the world. And all Nagarjuna can do is in, his, in his arguments is talk about how we use those basic concepts. So it's just, Newman are just untouchable. So first of all, that leads us again to the importance of realizing that Nagarjuna is doing more than just saying that things lack intrinsic nature. That's just the core thing that he needs us to accept. His distinctive philosophical point is that because things lack intrinsic nature, it becomes impossible to establish distinct individuals. And because it's impossible to establish distinct individuals, it's impossible to give any ultimate import to the claim that this or that thing exists. For Kant, on the other hand, um, objects of experience were certainly determinable. His, his aim was actually to make metaphysics more scientific, so that metaphysicians could come to clear and final conclusions, determinations about reality, as it's experienced, at least. But saying that they can't say anything about Newman. And it's important to remember that Nagarjuna, as we said, we talked about this, isn't trying to make um, claims about some transcendent reality. He's saying he's talking about everyday objects, uh, and then saying that those everyday objects kind of lack this substantial, determinate reality. And I mean, you could argue that, or well, maybe Kant's view implies that too, but it, it's certainly not what Kant was trying to say or wants to say. I don't think what most people get from him. So that's the big difference between Kant and Nagarjuna, I think. Um, mm -hmm. Nagarjuna is trying to undermine phenomena in a way that Kant wouldn't. And 
Well, it's true that uh, Kant, you wouldn't find any of Nagarjuna's arguments effective against the intrinsic nature of noumena. They would just say it's impossible, it's unjustified to reject the possibility of things having intrinsic nature just because the things which we experience don't. But there are ways to dismiss this. I think Nagarjuna would say, well, how do we, how do you even start talking about things we can't experience when we can't even grasp the things we can experience? It's just pure imagination to say, well, there are things of their own intrinsic nature. We just can't experience them or think about them or, you know, do anything in our minds with them whatsoever. But uh, and, and at that point, you can't even come up with any substantial metaphysics for the things that you can experience. Mm. So you could argue that Nagarjuna's undermining of phenomena gives him the ground to also undermine the noumena phenomena distinction. Because if you can't find phenomena, why would you posit noumena? You don't have a basis on which to say that there's other stuff that has intrinsic nature when you can't even find the first stuff. So those are the big differences, I think, between them. So that's interesting because then you've taken Kant's methodology to strengthen Nagarjuna, which in turn undermines Kant's whole project. <laughs> um, well, I mean, it depends on what you think his whole project is. I, I suppose so, because of course Kant, Kant was very religious too. So it's not that, I mean, Nagarjuna had his religious ideas. Kant definitely had equally religious ideas, I think, because Kant was um, trying very hard to justify belief in God and stop metaphysicians from trying to undermine belief in God and various religious beliefs about freedom of the will and the immortality of the soul and that kind of stuff, basically defining these things as as noumenal so that you couldn't really do philosophy about them. And yeah, I think Nagarjuna has the grounds to say, no, you can't, you can't just do that, which would be important for him at, at a religious point of view, because of course those are the kinds of things that Buddhists don't want any truck with. So yeah, it's important, I think, that Nagarjuna has those outs and that we recognize what he's doing as different to, you know, just, just trying to, to establish the point that all well, things don't have intrinsic nature. It, it goes way beyond that basic agreement, I guess, that the two will have on, on a specific realm. Hmm. Well, why would it be a big problem, I suppose, if intrinsic nature was incompatible with causation or dependent origination, as we might want to call it. Well, it's a big problem if you assume that you need causation yeah. to make sense of the world. So a big part of Kant is that the um, the categories, the, these basic concepts, are actually what determine various basic forms of judgment. So the, the very basic concept of causation is what allows us to make hypothetical judgments to do with real things. So if X, then Y. He says that the, the idea of causation is what allows us to make judgments to the point that, you know, well, if it rains, then it will be wet. Basic things like that, that help us actually structure what's going on around this. And if we say that things, that Svabhava is incompatible with that, all of a sudden, if we think of, of things as having Svabhava, now we can't make any hypothetical judgments about them. So we can't make anything of the form you know, if this is the case, then that's the case. We would be unjustified in saying anything like that, um, which makes it kind of almost impossible to think about what's going on around you. So, so that's kind of the, the, the massive import of this kind of thing. I mentioned too that Nagarjuna speaks a lot about the other, the concept of inheritance, about um, how properties inherent in, 
which is it's also a a category for time. And, and if we agree that when things with Svabhava can't be thought about with that category, then you get to the point where you can't make judgments, where you say anything about something, where you say, well, well, the book is big. <laughs> You're implying that there's a property inherent in the book called big. And, and the guardian will be arguing, well, you, you can't do that because if you think of these things as intrinsically real, you get problems as to how they relate in that sort of way. So that just kind of just undermines our whole schema for how we think about the world around us if we accept that this contradiction is there. So I guess a final question might be the worry that does this kind of undermine any scientific judgments? If we're making the claims about kind of there isn't any reality, can we can we not really do science anymore? Is that a problem? Uh, I, I do not think so, no. <laughs> Actually, um, so realism versus anti-realism in the philosophy of science is a very big topic. And anti-realism is actually very, really quite popular. Although in science, it tends to be, it tends to revolve around the theoretical versus empirical distinction. So, so things we can observe versus things that we can't observe. So, so lots of scientists or well, lots of philosophers of science, I think scientists probably don't think about this stuff, but lots of philosophers of science wouldn't believe that, for example, electrons should be treated as a real object the way that a book or a table would. And instead, they will serve a theoretical purpose that isn't affected by judgment of whether they're real or not. Or, or even if it is affected, that's fine. Maybe they're just empirically adequate for making predictions about what we see. We will we'll, we'll use this idea of electrons because it helps. But they don't put any truck into it being a real thing. And I mean, when it, for science, so I, I also study, for example, um, Henri Poincaré a lot, who's a, a major scientific figure. And I think that his views were actually quite similar to Nagarjuna's in terms of the role of convention. Because he, for him, like all ontology was conventional. He, he was quite a, a skeptic. He thought that the only thing that we can put any kind of objective value in is the relations between things. But even the relations weren't, to, to him, ultimate reflections of reality. And that didn't, of course, make him not do science. He did lots of science. But he thought that the real insight we gain into reality just comes from acknowledging the objectivity of the various relations we observe around us in the world and didn't put any kind of metaphysical truck behind whether it's a correct description of what's going on. In fact, he rejected that as, as absurd. He said, it's, it's ridiculous that to think that science tells us the nature of things, that we could reject that out of hand even. On, on the flip side of it, I think that Nagarjuna would also need some kind of commitment to that idea that there's at least objectivity in how things relate to one another. So that we can at least feel confident in, um, well, that when we do our Buddhist practice, it can lead to enlightenment and so on and so forth. And so there is this kind of regularity in the world, this kind of objectivity in, in how things operate. And, and Nagarjuna isn't trying to deny that, and then scientists aren't trying to deny that. But both philosophers of science and Nagarjuna can deny that any of this activity is an ultimate description of what's what reality is like. Okay. 
Can you tell me about um, kind of anything you're involved with at the moment? Uh, I'm on the the cusp of certain things. Like I, I mentioned, writing about about science and so on. That nothing to announce just yet, but I, I'm working on some stuff that I'm pretty excited about. So hopefully, we'll see some of that coming out. I mean, what's mostly going on right now is just being at home, like everyone else in the world. Yeah. So, but th- things are all right. I, I'm getting things done. It was kind of hard, I think, for me and a lot of people to get much done this year without everything that was, well, last year, I should say, with everything that was going on. Mm. But I'm, pu- I'm pushing through. <laughs> and the future looks bright. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Um, you know, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me. I enjoyed it as well. Um, yeah, thanks so much for having me.